Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 2nd, 2018. No theme today. Dog days of summer, I'm telling you. And you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, yeah, those are the only kind there are today, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that is teaching, that is put forward, for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. It's like not even close anymore. You kind of get the idea. And uh, and it, <laughs> they just keep me busy is the best way I can put it. And the busier they keep me, the more opportunities we have to actually show people what God's Word says. Here's the best part. What God's Word really does actually say, it's like way Way, 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 way better than, you know, what these uh, false teachers are saying. I mean, they're basically just telling people what they want to hear. But what God's Word really says and the comfort and assurance that it gives us in Jesus Christ, oh, man. (laughs) Oh, it is so awesome what God's Word really says. So you'll note, then, we approach this not from the point of view of being skeptical against Christianity and skeptical against Christ? Not at all, no. Uh, I personally believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, that every single word of it is absolutely true, that God still is working today to bring people to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and so, you know, we're we're not doing this as enemies of Christianity. In fact, I'm doing this at, from within Christianity, and I'm also a pastor. 
So, you know, just keep that in mind. Now, one of the things I like to say, and it's been a while since I've said it, never listen to fighting for the faith with an open mind. I don't need you to listen with an open mind. Don't need the benefit of the doubt. What I do need, and what you do need, is to listen to fighting for the faith with an open Bible. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is an open book experience, and the idea here is is that we get to look at the scriptures together, and uh, and so open up your Bible and fact check me. Yeah, that's right. I don't get a pass just because I'm Chris Rosebro, as if you know he's anybody because he's not. And so the idea is we get to work through biblical texts together. Yeah, I think you get the idea. So uh, so challenge you. Open up the Bible. Prove me wrong. If what I'm saying is wrong, show me from the clear uh, teachings of Scripture. That's the idea. All right, let's talk about what we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, this is another episode. No theme, although I've grouped a couple of things together that are kind of, you know, this is a lumpy episode of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, I've got one lump that's kind of in the same genre and theme, and I've got another lump that kind of goes its own way, and then the sermon review. So uh, so we're going to start off with a um, it, it basically prophetic end-of-the-world twin spin, and we're going to start with William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times, which is what he calls himself. I'm still not sure who he's co-profiting with, and I'm 100% sure that uh, his his children and grandchildren need to take the video camera away from him, but that's a whole other story. But uh, one of the questions that come up that comes up from time to time, why do you have William Tapley uh, featured so regularly on your program? The guy is totally hapless. I mean, this is a fellow that few people really listen to, and, I mean, he's got no chops. Answer, that's the reason why, because he got no chops. And uh, so we're going to be listening to him and note that what he's doing here. He's watching the news and trying to find prophetic insight into different events that uh, are happening on the news. And uh, recently, Trump's unexplainable blackout, whatever. So he's going to say QAnon can't explain Trump's strange blackout. We'll listen to William Tapley. And then we're going to switch over to uh, Steve Siakalanti and uh, his Prophecy News Watch, where he literally is trying to find prophetic significance in the story of the you know the Taiwanese Thailand uh, soccer players that got trapped in the cave. And uh, and so no joke, Steve Sia Calanti, Sia Chicalanti. I don't know how to pronounce it. Steve C. I, I never. That's such a weird word. Anyway, we're gonna listen to him, and you're gonna note he's engaging in the exact same uh, weird technique as William Tapley. But the difference between William Tapley and Steve C is that William Tapley has no chops. William Tapley is hapless. Steve C. just comes off as a smart guy. And because he's got, you know, he's got a, you know, a nice laptop and he's got interesting graphics, all those production values are still a little bit on the strange side. You know, he comes off as more believable. But he's doing the exact same thing as William Tapley. The difference is he's got some chops. So uh, when we're done with that, we're going to head down to Australia, 
and listen to Catherine Runala. And uh, have you heard the, the passage from Proverbs 18? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So therefore, you get to speak, you know, whatever you speak comes into existence. At least that's how, you know, false teachers like Catherine Runala twist that text. And we'll show you, you know, how to understand that text using a, a technique of sound biblical exegesis known as Scripture interprets Scripture and clear passages govern unclear passages. And so we'll take a look at that. And then to round out our number one, Beth Moore. Yeah, that's right. And the first message in her series titled A Memorial in the Middle, where she literally is going to make the claim that whenever you come to the border of your promised land, the Jordan River will always be in flood stage. (laughs) Yeah, so we'll cover that false doctrine that is so prevalent today that apparently you have, each individual person has his or her own unique individual promised land. And that somehow the promised land in the Old Testament is type and shadow of whatever, you know, great thing that God wants to do in your life today. Hogwash. That's not what the type and shadow is all about. We'll take a look at um, what Scripture says as far as what the promised land really points to. And, and Scripture, interpreting Scripture, again, yeah, gives us a clear, uh, clear picture of uh, what that is all about. Then in hour number two, we're heading to Bridgepoint Church, Woodstock, Georgia, as uh, Matt Spear explains to us um, about giant-killing grasshoppers. Yeah, that's all i got to say. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to start with a 30 Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times update, kind of a prophecy news twin spin, let's do this. Soon, listen to Thirty Gulls tune. Doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon, you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom. Very soon, rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom. Very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. Bum, 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 bum. All right, so we are heading over to the YouTube channel of William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, and his prophetic insights into uh, Donald Trump's recent mysterious blackout and, uh, and QAnon's coverage of it, as if somehow this has weird, uh, significant prophetic insights. But uh, I hope you're sitting down. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley. Are you broadcasting from inside of a wooden box? I mean, where is he? Anyway. Also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. Yesterday, Q Anon started posting after he took his 
summer vacation of all. You know, the other person in, you know, kind of like the weird prophecy, you know, code cracking, you know, YouTube guys, uh, the praying medic, he's into QAnon too. And I, I mean, every time I check in with his channel, I have no clue what he's talking about and what, what is the obsession with QAnon? Three weeks. And I felt very vindicated by his post. Because never once did he mention that blackout at President Trump's news conference last Tuesday when he said he had full faith in the intelligence services. And when he said that, the lights went out. Okay, yeah. And I claim that was a message from Almighty God. Oh, I'm surprised CNN has not hired you yet, William Tapley. I mean, and you know, now for the prophetic insight, you know, of what happened at the, with the Trump administration today. Here is our prophetic reporter, William Tapley. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I don't think Trump planned it. I don't think the deep state planned it. I'm sure it was some kind of human error. Somebody dimmed the lights. And they weren't supposed to. And they put them right back on again. That tells me that God was sending Donald Trump a message. And All right. So the blackout. Lights went out. And God's sending Donald Trump a message. And QAnon still has yet to weigh in. Got it? Post that Q uh, posted yesterday. And it's kind of interesting because uh, I don't think anybody else has noticed this. That there were 17 lines in the post. All right, so you can't see this because this is a podcast, and William Tapley is printed out um, the July twenty fourth, twenty eighteen QAnon post, wherever he posts, I don't know. And apparently, QAnon wrote some kind of a weird thing uh, from sea to shining sea. Who does Huber report to directly? Define evidence. Who has the server? Why does POTUS continually refer to the server? POTUS does not speculate future proves past. Who who has it all? Topics stated in the past. Yeah, you kind of get the idea. All right. And so William Tapley is really into this QAnon thing. And, uh, and so 17 lines of weird, cryptic POTUS poetry, I guess. And he thinks this has prophetic insight. Got it. I guess he called this post from Sea to Shining Sea. And of course, 17 is Q's favorite number because Q is the 17th letter of the alphabet. And did you notice the number of the post? The number is 1682. Yeah, I can honestly say this is the first time I've ever laid eyes on a QAnon post. And when you add those integers, you get the number 17. There you go. One, six, eight, two. Yeah, okay. So QAnon is very much into hidden messages and secrets and so on, and he always has, and this is why he is so fascinating. But he did not mention the hidden message and the strange occurrence. That was Donald Trump's word. The strange occurrence of the lights going out during that press conference. Got it. Okay. And I know some of you, my subscribers, said, oh, QAnon will mention that. And he didn't, at least so far. And I hope he does mention it. Now, I have been studying that clip because I knew there was more to it than I was getting, than I was. 
Okay. Yeah. Wow. Not sure how this will make me a better disciple of Jesus. Understanding. And it dawned on me. President Trump is praying when he says, I have full faith in the intelligence agencies. And why do I know that? Because he clasped his hands. And I hadn't noticed that before. Oh, so the um, prophetic significance in all of this is that Donald Trump was actually praying when he said that he had full faith in the intelligence service and when the lights went out, so this the, he was actually in a hidden posture of prayer because his hands were clasped together. You, is it possible that Donald Trump just put his hands together because you, sometimes you need something to do with your hands, you know? He never clasps his hands at a press conference. Never. I've never seen it. Never. Or at a rally or anywhere else. Never. The only time I have seen him clasp his hands, and here's a picture of him clasping his hands, and this was when the evangelical pastors visited Yeah, the word of faith televangelist heretics. Put him in the White House, and they prayed over him. They put his their hands on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he clasped his hands together. That's a typical attitude of prayer. And Donald Trump was praying when he said, I have full faith in the intelligence agencies. And all- I, I see. Yeah, this is going to go nowhere. So let's ch- check in with Steve Ciacalanti and, uh, and uh, his prophecy news watch as he kind of engages in this exact same technique that William Tapley is engaging in as he tries to explain the prophetic significance of the Thailand soccer players' cave rescue that you know was in the news. Uh, here's Steve C. Amazingly, this incident that has gone worldwide happened on the same day that we had our end-time conference here in Melbourne. On the 23rd of June, 2018, a 25-year-old soccer coach and 12 Thai boys aged... 11 to 16. Uh, dis- so note, um, he uh, is already engaging in the practice of the reading of omens because he thinks that somehow this has amazing significance because he was having some kind of prophecy conference on the exact same day that this news story broke. <gasps> oh, this proves that God's trying to be talking to me through it. Yeah, no. They were lost for nine days. By a total miracle, uh, these guys were found through scuba divers. They were two British scuba divers that bothered to go four kilometers into a cave system and found them. It's an absolute miracle, and I think it's the pride of man right now to not give glory to God because this could have ended in tragedy. And it will still end in tragedy if people don't humble themselves. Uh, Wait wait a second. So you know this guy's got a nice sports coat, nice button-down shirt. I mean, he he looks like he's spent some money on personal grooming, and his wardrobe has a really nice Apple laptop. And so apparently, I, I had no idea that the the uh, the story of the rescue of the soccer players from the cave could still end in tragedy if we don't humble ourselves. 
Um, okay. Um, what will happen if I don't humble myself as a result of what God's trying to say through this cave rescue? Many times when we have, remember the meteor that came to Russia and it didn't hit a city or kill anybody. And then people say, oh, we're Russians. We're tough. Really? You're not so tough if a meteor lands on your roof. We need to give glory to God that that meteor, God just flicked it away because somebody prayed. Every good thing that happens on this earth is because somebody prayed. But it's the pride of man. That so there was a meteor that God flicked away from the earth because of a prayer of somebody. Are you sure that's how that went down? Knowledge, the goodness of God. What happened? They um, wandered too deep into a cave system where they shouldn't have been. They went too far. Now they need to be rescued. And it was foreigners who came to rescue them. I think these three facts alone is a, is a metaphor of the spiritual condition of Thailand. I, I had no idea. I, wow, I didn't know you can do this with news stories. I've seen William Tapley do it, but... You know, we all know he's, you know, kind of, well, a little on the loony side, may have spent too much time in the sun, melted his brain, you know. Uh, the best way I could describe uh, William Tapley, yeah, using the word quixotic, quixotic. Look that one up, yeah. And it's a microcosm of what's going on in the entire world. I think this news has spread all over the place so that people would see a microcosm of the spiritual state of the world. Why is it so hard yeah, um, so, I mean, out of all the billions of people on the planet, how many people are really catching this important, prophetic, significant spiritual insight as it relates to the rescue of these soccer players? Why is it so hard to rescue these kids? There's 12 plus the coach, and right now they're saying, because they're trapped by a flash flood, they walked in, but they can't walk out. A flash flood came. It's monsoon season in Thailand. That means rainy season. They can't just get out. Why? Well, there's four, uh, they're four kilometers deep into the cave system. Parts of the cave is flooded. In order to get out, you have to go through a series of obstacles between caves, uh, walking, and diving. And it takes currently a professional diver. A professional diver can make it through that in three hours. In one place, it's so difficult to dive through that the professional would have to take off his, his tank. You know, I've done actually um, training for, for diving, and it's not easy. It's not like you can just put it on a regulator on a kid and say, just go for it. And especially when you go through a very narrow place, already one of the professionals, a, an equivalent of a Navy SEAL commando, has died yesterday died yesterday in an attempt to save them. They're running out of oxygen. They've gone down from 20-something to 15-something percent oxygen in the cave system, which is when you start getting, you know, delirious. You're not having enough oxygen. you got no food. You don't know what day it is. When the two British divers found them, they literally, they said, thank you, Sawat Dikap, thank you, and what day is it today? To be in that kind of darkness is a metaphor of hell. You don't know. Uh, what is wrong with like, you know, 
opening up your Bible and reading it. Day it is. You're in utter darkness. And uh seems strange to us in the West, but Thai people can't swim. This was true of my grandmother, true of my great-grandmother, and a lot of kids these days, they can't swim. So there's multiple factors which actually makes this, I think, a very interesting illustration of what's going on in Thailand. So I wrote this to my uh, supporters on Patreon. I'll just read you my post. I said, right now, Elon Musk is trying to help rescue the kids. Buddhist monks are trying to help. But there is no guaranteed salvation outside of God's grace. We want these boys to be safe. Twelve days without sun is a kind of hell. But people must know that human error got them into trouble. God is not to blame. God is ever ready to help, but only when ties call upon him. And he will not give his glory to another. It's sad, but already one Navy SEAL rescuer has died. Even the strong can be lost. By the way, the king of Thailand will hold a state funeral for this rescuer who died. Here is one way that all Thai believers can pray right now. Psalm chapter 40, verse 2. God says, He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established. Oh, man. So literally, um, this uh, you know, this cave rescue, uh, which has already happened, you know, um, it was somehow prophetically significant, and there was a spiritual message associated with the whole rescue itself. Was in fact a spiritual parable that uh, just a few people, like Steve C, uh, somehow was able to plumb the depths of the miry. It's prophetic insights of this cave uh, rescue and all of its particular different details, including the death of the Navy SEAL, the uh, darkness equaling hell, and uh, and the need then to repent and and stuff because you know. So you'll note Steve C is doing the exact same thing William Tapley does, but Steve C gets invited to speak at prophetic conferences and things like that and has t- t- tens of thousands of people watching each and every video on his YouTube channel. And so he's believed. William Tapley, yeah, not so much. But uh, they're both doing the exact same thing, and this is no way to engage in Christian discipleship, nor are we told in Scripture to read news stories in this way. We need to get back to the actual Word of God and discipling people uh, with the actual Word of God that God really has spoken. That's the way we we disciple people, not by engaging in this other stuff, which, by the way, at the end of the day, is, in fact, um, a distraction away from true biblical Christianity. Many people have shipwrecked their faith on the shores of prophecy code cracking you know, via watching the news and trying to figure out and divine using kind of you know the reading of omens what god is trying to say uh in the in the news today this is no way to uh this is not a practice christians should be engaging in all right we're up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard 
on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, we'll be hearing from Catherine Runala and Beth Moore. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Deep in the Australian wilderness, and also in the typhoid-infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dire. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. <laughs> Woo-hoo. No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. <laughs> are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, a book of approaching! Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from that book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The Circle One. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, 
sir. Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it's a... The Hubuku Drive didn't have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the, uh, this is Sun Sandstone prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, no debts. Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they, 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 now, now, have, have, the, the, Well, this is impossible! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and... It's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Uh, now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, 
reading your news uh, as a source for God's divine revelations, not the right source. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And, of course, if you would like to support us the traditional way, you can do so by clicking on uh, – not clicking, by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. So I was having this wedding, and and we had, we well, we didn't have, we had Shabbat. Mm, Shabbat Shunday. Yeah, 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 Shabbat. Yeah, time for a prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate update. We're heading down to Glory City Church in uh, Australia. Catherine Runala is the vision casting leader there, and uh, she's preaching a sermon, which God's word forbids her to be doing, and the name of it is Speak Life Over Your Circumstances. Now, have you ever heard, you know, a, a preacher of her ilk talk about, you, you know, Proverbs 18 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So you have the authority to speak to your circumstances and create life or death through your positive confession or your negative confession. Yeah, we're going to look at a couple of uh, ways in which to rightly handle God's Word. And note that uh, Proverbs 18 is not teaching that you have the ability to speak, you know, create certain, you know, you know, your future with your words. That is not at all what this passage is saying. And we'll do so by, number one, looking at the context and noting something about the passage itself. And that is, is it's a little bit unclear as to what it means. So we're going to use a second uh, technique known as Scripture Interpret Scripture, and we're going to use that in order to demonstrate that using passages that deal with a similar topic that are clearer, you can have a much better understanding of what's going on uh, in a biblical text and how to hand, rightly handle and know what your Bible is saying. So without any further ado, here's Catherine Runala and Speaking Life Over Your Circumstances. And we're talking about what it looks like 
to speak life. I've been sharing on this for a while now, but I really am excited about the testimonies that I'm hearing about what's happening when people are being very, very intentional with their words. Proverbs. Yes. Speak life. You got to be intentional with your words. Apparently, you can create your future with your words. Chapter 18, verse 20 says this. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth and the produce of his lips. From the produce of his lips, he shall be filled. Verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, you see, there it is. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So therefore you can speak to your future and create, you know, life by being intentional. This is called the word of faith heresy, by the way. Now, let's take a look at the passage in question. And so we'll put it in context, and you'll note that by putting in context, it's not going to help us all that much. Uh, So Proverbs 18, I'll start at verse 17. Here's what it says. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Verse 18, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So you note that the context itself is talking about, you know, it, you could make an, a case that these are different ways. I mean, quarrels often ha- happen via words and things like that, and people being offended by what you say. So you kind of get the idea where we're at with these words by the time we get to uh, verse 21. Uh, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. And then verse 21, the big one. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, immediately sit there and go, huh? What does that mean? I mean, just looking at it by itself in context, it's it's a little bit clear as mud. And so this is where it's going to help to remember that in order for a doctrine to be true, for instance, like the deity of Christ, there are clear passages that say that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God in human flesh. So his deity is clear, is established by clear passages of Scripture. This one's not so clear. So what do you do with it? Well, you look for other passages that deal with the use of the tongue and how or how not to, Scripture gives instruction, Use your tongue and you know for particular things. Now, I think one of the clearest passages that you can go to to help you regarding the use of your tongue, but there are others, is uh, James chapter three. James chapter three, and I'll start at verse one, and you can kind of see what this is talking about. Now, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, note. Teachers make their living with their mouths, with their lips. So we're, we're dealing kind of with the same topic. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths, mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide the whole, the, their whole bodies as well. So look at ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by, uh, guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, 
a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and uh, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And now you can see that what James is keying in on are the same themes that we were reading in Proverbs 18. And that's kind of the idea. So from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things not ought be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt a salt pond yield fresh water. So you get the idea here is, is that what Scripture is warning about is is how you are using your tongue. Are you using it in a way to lie about, to slander people? Are you using it to tear people down and, and to curse and swear and, you know, and, and then at the same time turn around and sing praises to God and see death and life. These are the concepts that are are clearly laid out in James 3, and so that helps us using Scripture to interpret Scripture, using the cross-references to see what's going on. Now, in order for the idea that your words create your future, that's not what Proverbs 18 says. Instead, Proverbs 18 is, again, it's kind of a vague passage. In order for the idea that your words create reality, your words create the future, in order for that to be true, you need passages that actually say that and spell it out. And note here, Jesus never taught this. Neither did the apostles. None of the apostles ever talked about the importance of creating reality with your words. By the way, that's called magic or witchcraft. And so, uh, you know, this is a, this is a problem. Now, God Himself, He spoke the world into existence, but we're not gods; we're creatures. And so, one of the unstated, um, kind of hidden doctrines of the Word of Faith heresy is the tacit belief that we are little gods, that we are little deities. And wa- watch what Runala does. I'm going to back this up just a little bit. And so that you can hear the context and then watch where she immediately goes. And you can see just how dangerous this teaching is. 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, you eat the fruit of your words. You can create the world around you with your words. You say, you can create the world around you with your words. No biblical text says that. And Proverbs 18 definitely does not. What are you talking about? Bible tells us that we are created in the image of the one who created the world with his words. He said, light be, and it was. And he tells us that death and life are in the power of our tongue, that we can eat the fruit of our lips. So if we're grumbling and complaining. So note, she said, God said, light be, and there was. So we're created in the image of God. We're little deities. Therefore, whammo, blammo, be careful what you say. You know, whatever you do, don't sing that song. Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. Yeah, because, you know, bad things will happen to you. (laughs) So, note, she said it, but she came really close to it, but didn't quite spell it out in uh, in its fullness. She's teaching 
that we're little gods, that we create reality with our words. But that's not what Proverbs 18 is teaching. Moaning and groaning, we're not, we're not changing anything for good, but actually establishing things in the negative that we're not looking to have. Yeah, so whatever you do, don't, do, don't engage in negative confession. You'll create disasters in your life. Romans 4.17, we've read this scripture before, says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, again... Note, we'll, we'll take a look at the uh, the passage in question, Romans 4, Romans 4, 17, out of context, which is a key that something's going wrong here. Um, so, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations, uh, and who, uh, God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, note here, it says, God, not you... Not me, not Paul, not human beings, but God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul is not saying that this is a a power that we have. We Christians pray. We ask God and beseech God and petition God for help and always saying, not my will, but your will be done. But word of faithers, yeah, they, they don't, they don't, ask God if it's thy will. They just decree and declare a thing. They speak life. They intentionally use their words to create a positive future. But again, note Romans 4.17 says, God, not you, God calls the things that are not as though they are. He's the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. That same God our God calls what doesn't exist as though it already does. And he's looking for us to begin to operate in his ways. His way. No, he's, so he's, no text says this, by the way. I love the pose here. Yeah, no text says this, Catherine, that God's waiting for us to learn how to operate in his ways and call into existence the things that are not. Romans 4.17 isn't saying, therefore, you go and call the things that are not as though they are. In fact, let's take a look at the passage itself. Um, so uh, Romans 4, in order to get the context, remember, context, 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 three rules. Uh, Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, by the way, uh, uh, that, w- that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. When you look at the context of Romans 4, Romans 4 is talking about uh, you know, salvation by grace through faith alone. So for if the adherents of the law, uh, uh, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So you'll note that uh, even Abraham didn't call into existence the things that did not exist, and speak positive life-filled words in order for Isaac to be born. Instead, Romans 4 is teaching us that Abraham trusted and believed the promises of God because God is the one 
who calls things into existence, not us. So what Catherine Rinala is doing is teaching us to behave as if we're little deities, which, by the way, it was the serpent who said to Eve that on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Catherine Rinala thinks she's a little deity. <laughs> she ain't, but she thinks she is because she's operating in the principles of God. And so she claims God wills for us to do these things, but no biblical text says that. Higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we need to get with his ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not what the Bible says. And you'll notice she's teaching a man-made doctrine, and she's twisting God's word to teach it. Yeah, it doesn't take long in that little teaching for her to get right to the nubbins of the problem right there, but that's false doctrine. So Proverbs 18.21 does not teach you that your words create reality. Neither does Romans 4.17 say that either. Catherine Runala, she's teaching, you know... <clears throat> This is witchcraft. This is a satanic and demonic doctrine. Moving along. Yeah, that's right. Time for a Beth Moore update. to Narsajit, a biblical passage faster than a hummingbird on three shots of Starbucks espresso. It's time for Bible Twisting with Beth Moore. Are you ready to find out about your multiple different and varied promised lands? Well, you're in for a treat, because she's going to not disappoint here. Let's uh, get right to it. Uh, we're going to be talking about promised lands in, in the middle and Jordan flooding rivers that are blocking your promised lands and stuff. Here's Beth Moore. Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. Let me give you a little bit of background. For 40 solid years, the children of Israel have been in the desert, in the wilderness, having been set free out of the wonders and mighty works of God from their oppression and slavery in Egypt to go to the land that God had promised. Okay, yeah, so far so good. That's true. To their forefather, Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12. And this would be the generation that would get to go in and take the promised land. One thing was between them and their land of promise, and it was the Jordan River. And I want to say something to you as we get started here together. This will always be the case that whatever stands between you and your land of promise will always be at flood stage. What? <laughs> what do you think my land of promise is, lady? Good night. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, uh, all right. We're, we're going to take a look at the Bible right now because my, I'm just, my mind just went. Anyway, so uh, let's take a look at Hebrews Chapter 11, shall we? And you'll note that the book of Hebrews is in the New Testament. 
And so it helps us because it clearly and unambiguously tells us what the promised land is all about in the Old Testament. Remember, it's type and shadow, and it's the book of Hebrews that teaches us that the Old the Old Testament is type and shadow, fulfillment found in the New Testament, oftentimes, again, finding the fulfillment in Christ. So <clears throat> here's what it says, Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, uh as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Does that sound like he was looking for something exist in the present earth, or even in the earth at his time? The answer is no. So by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now watch what it says here, starting in verse 13. These all died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We are too, by the way, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, by the way, if you're not sure what that is, read the back end of the book of Revelation where the heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Yeah, so the promised land of the Old Testament is type and shadow. The fulfillment is what? The new earth with the heavenly Jerusalem coming out of heaven, landing on planet earth and an eternal life in a new creation with after the resurrection with resurrection bodies. So the idea here is is that the promised land is not some outcome in your present life, like not at all. So what Beth Moore is saying is like goofy. And uh, she's really good at the goofy, by the way. Uh, And so she's allegorizing the promised land to make it about something in the here and the now. And it's like, no. (laughs) So, huh? yeah, but scripture interprets scripture. Just saying Hebrews 11 tells us what the promised land uh, metaphor of the Old Testament is all about. So let's go back to Beth Moore. It will always threaten to drown you. It will always threaten to take you completely under. Because if you thought... So my flood stage Jordan, and you have to put that in air quotes, my flood stage Jordan is going to try to take me under. Oh, oh no. (laughs) I got to back this up because this is just like lunacy. And I want to say something to you as we get started here together. This will always be the case that whatever stands between you and your land of promise will always be at flood stage. 
It will always threaten to drown you. It will always threaten to take you completely under. Because if you thought you could do it, it would not be a God thing. What? So I could tell that my promised land is my promised land when there's a flood stage Jordan trying to pull me under. But if it, I can tell it's from God because it's got to be a God thing because I couldn't do it myself. What does this even mean? Listen, your land of promise, when you and I draw a parallel uh, to the children of Israel, our land of promise is that place, is that ground in which you and I live. It's not geography as much as it is our theology of faith as we live. My promised land is my theology of faith. That's not what Hebrews 11 says out um, disciples on this globe, all over this earth. It is about being in a place where God's promises that were made to you in this new covenant, this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the promises he made over your life are actively fulfilled. In other words, that you don't just know that you are an overcomer, but you get to live like one, that you get What? (laughs) And this is why you should keep Beth Moore from having any caffeine products, okay? Not only does it mess with her, like, uh, you know, flittery, jutteriness, it it screws up her theology, too, clearly. This is nonsense. Hebrews 11 just clearly says that, you know, the, the promised land is actually... The new heavens, new, it's the new earth. You know, it's the heavenly Jerusalem. This is what Hebrews 11 clearly says. And what she just said is like, I have no idea where she got that from. See some things work together for good for those who um, love God and are called according to his purpose. Yeah, Romans 8.28 has nothing to do with my personal here and now promised land. All the promises he made that you are chosen and called and you are gifted to. How about forgiven? Yeah, that's kind of a big one that I have been given the gift of eternal life. You know, that that kind of thing much fruit that all of those promises are brought into active fulfillment, not in a land of ease, not in a land without an enemy, not in the land of ease. How about the land of Honolulu? You know, you know. Puff the magic dragon. Yeah. What on earth is she talking about? But in a land where you bear much fruit, that is your land of promise. And so North Dakota, that's where I live right now. That's the land I live in. North Dakota is my land of promise. I live in American Siberia, lady. This better not be my promised land. There is one for every single person in this room. Yeah. And what stands between us and getting into there that. There is an individual promised land for everybody. No. That is not what Hebrews. Oh. The, the, the real promised land that Abram was looking for is your promised land and my promised land too. They're all we have a promised land as Christians. We, as believers in the one true God, we all have one singular promised land that we that God's promised all of us. You know, it's the new earth. So, so 
Okay. I have to listen to just a little bit more of this because clearly I, I'm into self-harm. Yeah, yeah. Land, wherever it may be in your sphere of influence, where we're, our lives are going to bear much fruit, there is going to be a flood stage river. No, a flood stage river. Say it isn't so. I, here in North Dakota and Grand Forks, you know, we have the Red River. It does flood in the spring. So I guess my <laughs> flood stage river is the, the you know, the Red River because North Dakota is my land of promise. <laughs> this is so bizarre. Right between us and that place. And the whole question will be, will we have guts enough to step our feet into those flooded waters. Re- <laughs> and she's so serious. Will we have faith enough to put our feet, step into those flooded waters? What are you talking about? I've never put my foot near any flooded waters ever. Never will either. Unless I want to die. But... <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this is not what the Bible teaches regarding the promised land. And Beth Moore, the great Bible teacher, this woman has never read Hebrews 11. Strange, scripture interprets scripture. And this particular type and shadow has been decoded for us unambiguously by God himself in the book of Hebrews. I don't know what she's talking about, where she's getting any of it. But she ain't getting that from the Bible, so there you go. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review by Matt Spear. Giant killing grasshoppers. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code 
for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, exclusive Skype interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Now, the opening to this sermon is like out of left field. Yeah, spoiler alert. No, 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 really, it is a spoiler alert. The opening, he's going to regale us with the story of Sylvester Stallone pitching the concept of Rocky to United Artists. And somehow this is going to be held up as, you know, Christian sanctification or something we need to be striving to do. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon? I, I don't know what it is. Comes to us via Bridgepoint Church, Woodstock, Georgia, Vision casting leader Matt Spear presiding. Name of the message is Giant Killing Grasshoppers. And I've already spoiled the intro for you on this one. But, you know, I think this is actually not a sermon. I think this is a self help pep talk. And I'm pretty sure I don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this message. Yeah, it's just weird. Let me go ahead and back off on the music, and let's get right to it. Here is Matt Spear in his message pep talk titled um, Giant Killing Grasshoppers. Here we go. In 1946, a baby boy named Michael entered the world, and, and the pregnancy had gone well, but during the birthing process, there were some complications, and so the doctors had to use the forceps to pull him out. And when they did, they mishandled the forceps and they damaged some of the nerves on one side of Michael's face. And so for the rest of his life, uh, one side of his face drooped a little bit. It caused a, a speech impediment. So you can imagine as a kid, he got picked on. He was teased and made fun of. And it only made matters worse when in high school, he discovered a love for acting. He had a dream that one day he wanted to be a movie star. And in fact, he was driven by that dream so much that he went to college to study acting. And after he graduated college, he moved back and forth between. Yeah, I just have to ask the question. Is Christian sanctification, is holiness and being Christ-like a matter of pursuing a dream like becoming an actor, a Hollywood movie star? You know, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that 
movie stars in general are insanely self-absorbed people with just few exceptions. Between New York and Los Angeles in pursuit of this dream. Now, when he was in New York, he met a girl, they fell in love, they got married, and things were going well, except financially, it was really tough. Neither one of them had been able to have a breakthrough role. He'd had a few bit parts in some movies, and even a lead role in like a C-level movie, but, but he hadn't had his one breakthrough moment. In fact, things were so tight that at one time he was forced to take his own dog and to sell it because he either had money to feed himself and his wife or he had money to feed the dog, but not both. So he sold the dog, walked away from the transaction with $106 in his bank account. And on the way home, he noticed that there was a local movie theater that was showing the Chuck Wepner Muhammad Ali boxing match. And they were uh, opening it up for the public for free. And so he decided to go in to try to lift his spirits. And while he sat there and he was watching this kind of stumbling, bumbling, everyman Chuck Wepner boxer go toe-to-toe with the greatest boxer to ever live, a light bulb went off in his head. He raced home and he began to to write a script. He spent the next three and a half days writing and writing and writing. He had a 90-page script when it was all said and done. And just a short while later, he was sitting down with the executive producers at United Artists Studio pitching this movie idea that he had. Now, the producers loved the idea, and they were uh, sitting in that meeting just dreaming and brainstorming. They could have Burt Reynolds play the lead, James Caan, even Robert Redford. But as they were talking, they said, all right, we want to buy this from you. It's going to be $360,000. We'll pay you for the rights to this script. That's a lot of money back then. Uh, Today, it equates to over a million dollars. And all of a sudden, this was his big breakthrough, his big moment. But see, when Michael had written that script, he'd written it with the idea of him playing the lead in mind. And so he's at this moment. Does he, he choose the money or does he choose his dream? And so he tells the producer, say, that sounds great, but, but I want to play the lead. He said, well, we can't have an unproven, unknown actor in a movie like this. And so they negotiate back and forth, and they settle on paying him $18,000 for the rights to the movie script. And he can play the lead role, but he's only going to get paid a percentage of the profits from the box office. Furthermore, they're going to give him a shoestring budget, and he's got to finish the movie as quick as possible. So Michael leaves that meeting, and he enlists all of his family and friends to to be in the movie. And in fact, they shoot this thing so quickly, they're finished in 28 days. That's phenomenally fast for making any kind of movie, because they filmed most of the scenes in one shot, because they couldn't afford to do multiple takes. They get everything edited, put together, the movie finally premieres, and the critics love it. Not only that, but people all across the world fall in love with the movie. It becomes nominated for nine Academy Awards. It wins for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Film Editing. You know the movie. It's Rocky. And you know Michael by his stage name, Sylvester Stallone. And see, I love that story because it reminds me that that if we're ever going to accomplish anything great in life, we are going to have to take a risk. See, there was a moment there that, that Sylvester Stallone uh, could have played. If we're going to accomplish anything great in life, we're going to have to take a risk. Where in the Bible is Christian sanctification equated with doing something great in life that requires a risk? Played it safe. 
He could have taken the $360,000 and honestly, he could have lived a comfortable life. No one would have blamed him. He could have still been a multimillionaire as a screenwriter. But he knew that he wasn't created to write scripts. He was created to act. And so he bet on himself. He took a gamble. He knew he wasn't created to write scripts. Uh-huh. How, how did he know this? Did he get a direct revelation from God about what he was actually created for? And it paid off. See, see if we're ever going to accomplish anything great in this life, it's going to require risk. We know that's true in our own life. If you want to get your dream job, you want to have your dream career, you're going to have to risk something. When did Christianity become about achieving your dream job or your dream career? It might mean that you have to change companies. You have to change positions. You have to move across the country or across the world. If you're ever going to accomplish anything great in this life, it's going to require risk. The same is true even in our faith. Jesus is going to ask us to give up something. But unfortunately, most of us approach our faith with kind of two different hands. And one, What's Jesus going to ask us to give up? one hand, we have kind of our hopes, our dreams, our vision for what our life should look like. We've got our, our house with our white picket fence, and we've got our one and a half kids and our little dog, and we've got our plans to retire and go to the lake with a boat. We, we have this perfect picture of what... Yeah, it, except for here's the issue. Scripture is very clear that being a good husband, being a good wife, being a godly parent, and a Christ-like employee... These are all good works and are pleasing in God's sight. Why are you making it sound like doing something like that is somehow antithetical to God's will when, like Ephesians 4, 5, 6, clearly teach this is God's will and these are good works? Of what we want our life to be. And on the other hand, we have Jesus. And what we love to do is we like to take Jesus and just sprinkle a little bit of him on our own hopes and dreams. Just a little bit though, because like salt, you don't want too much because it might ruin it. So, so, so we'll come to church as long as, as the weather's not too bad or too good or if we stay out too late on Saturday night. But, but we come and we feel good. We, we serve. We want Jesus to make us feel really good about our vision for our life. But, but the moment he asks us to give something up, what do we do? We're going to put Jesus... Yeah, the thing Jesus seems to be consistently asking us to repent of and bear fruit in keeping with repentance is things related to sin and sin itself. Jesus behind our back. Say, Jesus, we'll follow you, but but not that far. I call it getting the Jesus vaccine. Because what is a vaccine? It's where you take a... How far does Jesus require us to follow him? In what sense are you talking distance here? Take a weak, dying, or dead form of a virus, and you put it inside your body so your immune system can create antibodies so that when it encounters the real thing, it knows how to attack it and how to defeat it. And unfortunately, I think for some of us, we've got the Jesus vaccine. We've been exposed to a weak, dying, or dead faith. And then when we encounter real faith, when Jesus challenges us to follow him in a real way, we've learned how to push him away. And if we're ever going to accomplish something great in this life, if we're ever going to truly make a difference, it's going to require some risk. So you got the idea for this series a few months ago, because every May uh, we take a few days and we, we go on a staff retreat 
here at the church. And we kind of think and dream and plan about what the next year holds. We spend time praying over the church. We spend a couple of days planning out the entire calendar for the year. And as we're getting ready for that, and I started thinking about all the amazing things that I believe God is going to do this, this coming year. And I'm going to share a little bit of those later this morning. But, but as I started thinking about all those big plans, I started thinking about the fact that we're going on a staff retreat. What, what does retreat mean? It means to fall back when you encounter obstacles, opposition, problems. It means to run away to safety. Yeah, that's only one of the dictionary definitions of the word retreat. The, the it is also there are other meanings that don't have to do with falling back. Uh huh. Yeah, man, I'm gonna lose my mind. I think listening to this nonsense. And they started thinking if we're gonna see this vision become reality, if we're gonna see these goals uh, turn into to the truth, then then we don't have time to retreat. We've got to advance. We've got to move forward. We've got to take ground. I think the same is true in our lives. If you're here today and you follow Jesus, if you're here today and you fully believe there's a, a purpose and a calling on your heart, if you're here today and you truly want to make a difference, to leave a legacy behind... Th- yeah, Christians are not called to make a difference. Nope. The Great Commission is to make disciples. There is no time to retreat. We have to advance, and advancing always requires risk. In fact, if there's one thing that you take away from today, I hope it's this, that life-changing faith always requires significant risk. A life-changing faith will always require some significant risk. Because if you're not risking anything, are you really trusting God for anything? Yeah, I'm trusting him for the things he's really promised me. Forgiveness of my sins, eternal life, daily bread, things like that. So the question then becomes, how do we take that risk? How do we, how do we, yeah, where in scripture am I told I have to take a faith risk? Live a life that leaves this legacy behind. The answer to that question, I think, is found in a story in Numbers chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to pick up in verse 26. And as you're turning there, let me kind of set the scene for what's happening. The Old Testament primarily revolves around the story of God's people, the Israelites. The story really starts in Genesis chapter 12. And when God comes to a man named Abram and says, Abram, listen, the world is a broken place. It's fallen. It's not the way I intended for it to be. And Abram says, no, duh, right? Like, you don't have to be a great philosopher or theologian to look around and say, yeah, the world seems like a pretty broken place. There's people who are dying of poverty. There are children being separated from parents. There there are people who are dying from easily treatable medical conditions. This world is broken. So God comes to Abram and says, the world's broken, but I have a plan to fix it. And if you will follow me and trust in me, then I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And then I'm going to... yeah, could you point me to that dialogue where God talks about how the world is a broken place and so I've got a plan to fix it? I'd like to see that dialogue from an actual biblical text in the book of Genesis, please. I'm going to give you a land for your people, and the, through this land and through this people, I'm going to change the world. So Abraham trusts in God. Change the world. Yeah, again, that's not what Christians are called to do. God, he follows him. They enter into a covenant, a relationship with one another. And sure enough, 
all of a sudden Abraham starts to have many descendants. In fact, they, they number in the millions when we find them in the book of Exodus, only they don't have their land yet. When we encounter them at the beginning of Exodus, they're living as slaves. They've been dehumanized. They've been separated from their own families. They've been given new names. They've been beaten, oftentimes killed. They've been told their entire lives that they are less than. But when the families come together at the the end of the day, the stories they tell themselves are the stories about God and Abraham. The stories they tell their kids are that that we're God's chosen people. And one day he's going to use us to change the world. One day he'll give us a land of our own. We won't be slaves anymore. We will be free and we will change the world. One day, God. Where the Israelites say, one day we will change the world, I'd like to see that text, please. God sends a savior, a man named Moses. He leads God's people out of slavery into freedom. And then God leads his people right to the doorstep of this land that he had promised to them hundreds of years earlier. Now, Moses and his brother Aaron, they're kind of leading the Israelites. Before they just jump into this land, Moses decides he'll send some spies in to scout out the land. So he selects 12 men. They go into the land to see what's going on. And they discover that there are more resources than they ever imagined. In fact, they say that there's this fruit, these grapes, that they decide we're going to take some back with us. And they're so big that the bunch of grapes takes two men to carry back to Israel. And so they go on this mission, they, they go to scout it out, and then they come back to report what they found. And that's where we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 26. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went in the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. So imagine this picture. that They kind of walk in, and Moses and Aaron and the entire community are there. And they kind of pick up these bowling ball-sized fruit and kind of set it down. And say, this is better than anything we ever dreamed of. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. That's an idiomatic phrase. Like when we say it's raining cats and dogs, it doesn't mean that animals are falling out of the sky. They say it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It doesn't mean that there were rivers of milk and honey. It just means that there were abundant resources. So this is better than anything we imagined. But then we get to verse 28, and there's a but or a however. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. And the Hithites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. In other words, they say, yeah, the land is great. It's better than anything that we ever believed. But, but there's a problem. There's people who live there. And they have these strong, fortified cities. Not only that, but they say they're the descendants of Anak, who was a god that they believed had, had dwelt in that region. And he was a giant. And so they, they saw these people who were descendants. So they must have been giant people. They say, yeah, we thought that God was going to give us this land, but there's other people who live there. There's a problem. We, we can't defeat them. We can't overtake them. This isn't what was supposed to happen. And all of a sudden, the the people start to grumble and complain. How could this happen? How could God lead us here? And now we can't even take the land that he had promised to us. But then one of the spies began to speak up. A man named Caleb. And in verse 30, it says that Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land 
Because we can certainly conquer it. So Caleb's there, and he was one of the spies. He went in the land. He saw the same resources. He saw the same fruit. He saw the same giants, the same problems. But he's the one saying, no, 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 no. let's go on. Let's go up right now. Let's take the land. We can do it. What's the difference between the other spies and Caleb? They see the same thing, but they have different perspective. Because the first spies saw all of the problems But Caleb remembered God's promise. He's promised us this land, and if he promised it to us, then he will get it to us. He'll deliver it to us. And if we're going to have a life-changing faith, if we're going to take significant risk, then we have to remember to focus on God's promise rather than our position. Um, Okay, yeah, you're right. Caleb and Joshua trusted the Lord. They had faith in the promise. What promise are you talking about that I am supposed to have heard from the Lord that will require me to take risks? What exactly are you talking about? I always have to focus on the promise that God's given us rather than the position we find ourselves in. You might be thinking, well, wait a second, life wasn't supposed to turn out this way. Well, wait a second, there weren't supposed to be people in the land. But if you remember God's promise, you'll be able to take that risk. I've got three boys, and, and one of the ways that we love to bond with each other is over ice cream, right? So we'll go to Dairy Queen, we'll go to Brewster's. We, we love to eat ice cream. And I remember when my oldest was in kindergarten, and they kind of do that behavior chart system where you get the green light, yellow light, red light. Green light means good, and yellow light, you messed up a little bit, and red light is bad. And if you're a teacher here, you know there's always like that one kid, they walk in in the morning, you're like, go ahead and put it on red. Okay, you're just going to stay there the whole day. We already know what's going to happen. And so uh, throughout that year, Eli had done pretty good, but, but there was a couple times where, where he was getting on yellow. And so I remember this one particular season, he was just having a hard time. And so I pick him up from school one day. And he comes out and said, hey, bud, how'd you do? He said, I got a green light. And I said, oh, that's awesome. Well, let's go celebrate. Well, what do you want to do? And of course, he said, well, I want to go get ice cream. I was like, okay, great. I'm down for that. Where do you want to go? He said, I want to go to Yogli Mowgli. Now, if you're not familiar with Yogli Mowgli, it's this yogurt place. You kind of walk in. Everybody gets the same size cup. And then you walk over to the yogurt machines. You get any flavor you want. Put as much in the cup as you want. You walk over to the little bar area, and there's, there's candy. There's cookies. There's sauce. There's, there's fruit. Like You can put whatever you want on it. And then you go and you weigh the cup, and you, you pay by the weight. So, you know, for most of us, we kind of go in and we put our our yogurt in and a few toppings on. My kids put a a dab of yogurt and then a whole bowl of candy. And then they just set it up there and we kind of get that. And and so that's what he wants to do. I said, all right, bud, that's great. We're going to go get Yogli Mowgli. So we get in the car and we start driving towards the store when we get into traffic. It's just stopped. And so I decide, you know, as as the the father in the family, I'm going to make the executive decision. We're taking a shortcut. I don't know how it is in your family. My family doesn't always think my shortcuts are actually any shorter. And they might not be, but I would rather be moving than sitting in traffic, even if it takes me two or three minutes longer. And so we're sitting there. I kind of turn off and I start going these back roads and I'm going through these neighborhoods. And and I see in the back seat, he's getting antsy. And he says, Dad, this isn't the right way. Dad, this isn't the way to get ice cream. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. I promise, bud, this is the way we go. He said, no, no, no. You need to turn around. You need to go back. This isn't the right way. And, and as parents, we love when we're being told how to drive by a six-year-old, right? That just makes you have a great day. And so he's back there. And so I can see him. He'll sit down. He'll settle in for a little bit. And then a few minutes later, no, 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 dad, dad, dad just go back. We, we need to get to the ice cream. But just trust me. 
And so finally we pull into the parking lot and his eyes get real big. He said, oh yeah, you did know how to get here. I was like, yes, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so we go and we have a great time. But I was thinking about it later. I was thinking, man, how often do we do that to God, right? Because he's made a promise to us. He's put a calling and a passion inside of our hearts. Yeah. Um, where in the Bible does it say that God makes a promise to us by putting a calling and a passion in our hearts? Can't think of a single biblical text that says that. And yet sometimes life gives us a detour, but God's still going to get us there. We just have to remember to focus on the promise rather than our position. You'll note that this, uh, the error here is that... Uh, Matt is uh, bought into and is a purveyor of the dream destiny thingy heresy. It's a false doctrine. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that God's going to put a purpose and a, a promise and a destiny and stuff like that in your heart. Nowhere does it say that. We say, oh, wait a second. I thought that I would be somewhere else by now. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought I'd have kids by now. I thought I'd have that job by now. But we have to remember that if God promised it to us, he will bring us there. We have to remember to focus on the promise, not the position. Yeah, the problem is God hasn't promised us what you say he's promised us. You're making promises for God that he's never made. See, today is my three-year anniversary as the lead pastor here at Bridgepoint. And it's been just a phenomenal ride. I just had some of the, the best moments in my life, some of the most difficult moments in my life. Like, it hasn't always been easy. You know, there's people I thought were, were going to be with me to the end, and, and, and they're, they're not here. And then there's other people that I didn't even know a few years ago. They're just some of the, the best friends that I could ever ask for. And, 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 man, it has been an incredible journey. This is what I've always wanted to do. I wake up every day excited to come to work. I can't believe that they pay me to do this. I'd do it for free. Just don't tell the elders, please. Just have a blast. But man, the eight years leading up to me becoming the pastor here were some of the most difficult eight years of my life. I was working any job to support the family, whether it was in retail. I was a night shift custodian at a high school. I was a delivery driver. I, I answered phones for a company. I did everything that you could imagine. And yet through that all, I managed to, to make it through school, managed to spend time with the family, managed to be involved at church. And I don't say all that to, 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 to brag on myself. I say all that to say that if you're here today and you're, you're wondering, man, I thought I'd be somewhere else by now. I know exactly what that feels like. I know what it's like to sit down at night and have a conversation with your spouse or, or sit, sit at the coffee shop across from a mentor or friend and say, you know, I, I thought I'd be there by now. I thought things were supposed to be different. I thought I was supposed to have made it by now. But I can tell you that when we focus on God's promise, then you don't stop short. If you're here today and you find yourself in the wrong position, don't give up. Don't stop. Don't quit. Keep going. Because if you stop now, you might stop two feet from the finish line. You have to, to keep going. Remember his promise. Write it down on a, a post-it note. Put it on a card. Write it on your mirror. You know, spray paint it on the side of your car. Whatever you have to do, you have to remember the promise. Because then it doesn't matter where you find yourself in the position. It doesn't matter where you find yourself on the path. It doesn't matter where you find yourself every morning when you wake up. When you know God's promised it to you, that's what's going to give you the faith and the strength to carry through when it's time to make a risk. You have to focus on God's promise rather than your position. But see, that wasn't enough for that first group of spies that they come back. They say, Caleb, you don't understand. Look at verse 31. 
But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't attack the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And the people we saw in it are, are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. I love this because all of a sudden, they say about this land that they were just bragging on. They say, it will, it'll eat us alive. This land that, that just a moment ago was a blessing, they're now viewing as a curse. Because when you look through the lens of fear, everything that God wants to bless you with looks like a curse. All of a sudden, all the things that, that you wanted start to look... Yeah, by the way, the story of the 12 spies is not a parable about uh, making sure that you are, you don't, you know, how do I put this? Making sure that you take the proper risks by having faith in the dream vision thingy that God's going to lay in your heart. That's not what this is about at all. Bad. Start to look unattractive. And then we get to what I think is the, the saddest verse. In the entire Bible here, verse 33, the second half, it says, To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. We must have seemed the same to them. Some translations say we were grasshoppers in our own eyes. And I wonder if God looked at them and said, Who told you you were grasshoppers? Who told you you were insignificant? Who told you you were a bug? Nobody. But when you look, yeah, um, that would be the result of their lack of faith in God. Look through the lens of fear. You start to see yourself as less than who God created you to be. But what does Caleb do? This time he's joined by another guy, a guy named Joshua. If you look at verse six, it says Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were among those who had scouted out the land. They tore their clothes. This was a sign of mourning and of sadness. They just ripped their clothes. They can't believe that these people are turning their backs on God. And in verse 7, they said to the entire Israelite community, The land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and He will give it to us. See, they both saw the same land. But when you look through the eyes of, of fear, the land looks dangerous. It looks scary. It's full of problems. But when you look through the eyes of faith, all of a sudden it is a bountiful land. It's plentiful. There's everything that we've ever wanted and dreamed. And if we're going to be able to take this risk, we have to look with eyes of faith rather than eyes of fear. Yeah, God's not telling us to take risks. The whole premise of this sermon, it's, it's totally off based upon a doctrine that does not exist in Scripture, the dream-destiny-thingy doctrine. Fear. Some people think faith and fear are opposites. I don't think that's true at all. I actually think faith and certainty are opposites. But see, faith... Yeah, we're going to key in on that theme on Thursday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Just want to let you know that. (laughs) So faith and certainty are opposites. So faith and uncertainty are the synonymous? No. Absolutely not. Hebrews chapter 11 makes this very clear. Here's what it says. Faith, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction. You can translate alegos here, which is the, uh, the Greek word. You can literally translate that certainty. Uh-huh. It is the certainty of things not seen or by faith the people of old received their commendation by faith we understand that the universe 
was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, what this guy is now saying is the exact opposite of what Scripture says regarding what faith is. Faith isn't the absence of fear. Faith is trusting in God even when you're scared out of your mind. Faith means trusting. Yeah, you're right. Faith is not the absence of fear. And the reason why we have fear and we have doubts is because we are sinful is because our sinful nature is you know wrestles with these things and fights against uh, our faith trusting god even if he might not come through i think there's no greater example of what faith looks like than the great american classic film finding nemo if you've seen this movie before you- finding nemo now is being held up as an example of well you know Christian sanctification. Wow. Or you know that it centers on this little clownfish named Marlin. And Marlin loses his son Nemo off of a reef where some divers come and take him. And they take Nemo away to Sydney, Australia. So Marlin and his friend Dory, they make this journey across the entire ocean. They encounter sharks. They encounter sea turtles. But at the lowest point of their journey... Marlon and Dory find themselves in the belly of a whale. They've been swallowed, and they think that they're about to be eaten. They think that their journey has come to an end. It's my favorite scene in the movie. They're hanging there on the taste buds of the whale's tongue, and all of a sudden, Dory lets go. And Marlon grabs her and says, what are you doing? And she says, he said it's time to let go, and everything's going to be okay. And he said, but but how do you know something bad's not going to happen? And In one of the most theological, philosophically profound statements in any movie, she says, I don't. I don't know that everything's going to be okay. I think that maybe that's where some of us find ourselves today. We've been holding on to these things in our life so tightly, and God just saying, it's time to let go. Just trust me. It's not always safe, but God is always good. See, what fear leads us to do is just to hold on things, to to close our hands, to close our hearts, to to close ourselves off to everything else. But see, we can never receive what God has for us if our hands are closed. Maybe today he's telling you to let go of something, to let go of a job, to let go of a house, to let go of a relationship, to let go of your kids, just to let go and to... to Maybe God's telling them to let go of... Bridgepoint Church and go find a real church where God's word is rightly taught. To trust him. Because see, fear will always drive us to our comfort zones, right? And we think our comfort zones make us safe, but really our comfort zones just make us small. Our comfort zones prevent us from stepping into what God has for us. And we have to be... Yeah, your comfort zone is the big enemy of what God has for you. What are you talking about? Be willing to look with eyes of faith. It's not saying that, that everything's going to be great. It's not saying that we're never going to be scared. But it said, I'm going to trust God, even if I don't know what's going to happen. We have to be able to look with eyes of faith rather than eyes of fear. And you would think at this point, like with, with Caleb and Joshua, really like, no, come on, guys, we, we can do this. That the hearts of the Israelites would be turned. But, but now the whole community starts to turn on them. Chapter 14, verse 2. It says, all the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron. And the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, 
Or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. All of a sudden they start to say, well, why is this happening? Why is this happening to us? Why did God lead us out here? Why didn't we die in the wilderness? Why didn't we die in Egypt? He just brought us out here for this to happen. How could God do this to us? Why? And then uh, I noticed there that they they try to elect a new leader who's going to take them back to Egypt, right? Because they want to go back to the way things used to be. And by the way, if you're here today and you're in any kind of leadership position, when you start to move forward, when you are on the precipice of stepping into the land that God has promised you, that is when the voices of dissent will become the loudest. And they'll want to replace you with someone who will take them back to the way things used to be. What? (laughs) Ah! Yeah, I think our Beth Moore segment earlier, uh, I'll just invoke that at this point. He clearly has no clue what the promised land is either. Used to be, right? Because now it's different. Now it's scary. Now we actually have to risk. But when you're at the point where people are ready to replace you, it means you're finally about to step into what God has promised to you. Remember, everybody wants to go back to the good old days. They weren't as good as people remember them anyway. Because if that was the case, you never would have left to begin with. Do you think they really wanted to go back and be slaves? No. But they were just saying, why me? Why me? We've all met people. Everything is, why me? Why does this always happen to me? What do Joshua and Caleb say, verse 9? They say, only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Remember, the the, the Israelites were saying, we are like grasshoppers. They're going to crush us. But now Joshua and Caleb are saying, no, 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 we're going to devour them because their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. He said, listen, the battle is already ours. The victory has already been won. God's removed the protection. And while everyone else is saying, why me? What are Joshua and Caleb saying? They're saying, why not? And if we're going to take risks, we have to move from asking why me to asking why not? We need to start asking the question, why not me? Instead of asking the question, why me? Why does this always happen to me? Because when we ask the question, why, it focuses on me. When we ask the question, why not, it focuses on our mission. You know, I said we have three boys in our family. And and I remember when we were getting ready to find out the gender of our third boy. Everyone on both sides of our families were convinced we were going to have a girl. Especially on my wife's side of the family because her sister had three boys. We had two boys. Like the law of averages says, eventually you keep having kids, you will have a girl, right? And I was praying against it. Because girls, frankly, they just scare me. Okay, because they have things like emotions that I don't know how to deal with. But, but really the reason it scares me is because even my little boys, they wrap me around their finger. And I know if I had a little girl, it'd be all over. I'd be useless as a parent. Like uh, I would just do whatever she wanted me to do. So, so man, I was relieved. I was excited. And I'm thinking, oh God, I don't even have to buy new clothes. We'll just pass those on down. This is going to be great. But then there were some moments where I was like, well, why couldn't we have a girl? Like, why did, why didn't God give me a girl? Is there something wrong with me? Like, like am I not like a girl dad? You know, you have the boy mom. Can I be a girl dad? Like, I, I don't, I don't know what the deal is here. But I remember as I'm kind of wrestling with this and sitting in my quiet time that I felt like God pressed on my heart one day that this next generation needs to have a group of strong, godly men. They need men who who know how to follow God, who know how to lead others. They know how to respect women. They know how to be who God created them to be. And I felt like in that moment, God said, stop asking why 
We start asking, why not me? Why shouldn't I be the one to help raise that next generation of men? And why shouldn't that start in my house? Why shouldn't that start with me? And yet so often we're asking, God, why? Why, why haven't I met the right person yet? Well, why, I thought I'd be married by now. Why, why is this happening to me? And maybe, maybe the question we should be asking is, why not me? Maybe God wants me to do something radical. Maybe, maybe he wants me to have the freedom to just drop everything and move wherever he has. Maybe, 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 maybe. Notice all the ambiguity here. Rather than opening up an epistle, well, you know, by the way, you, know, you want to know what our good works are as Christians? Read Ephesians. Read the back end of some of the epistles in the New Testament just so clearly lays out what our good works are and you know how we are to conduct ourselves in our christian life in our in in our walk in love towards god and love towards neighbor it defines it so clearly that it's unambiguous but the only thing he's dealing with is like total ambiguities well i don't know what god's laid on your heart you know me he laid this on you and this on this other yeah i don't know you know and and so we have no clear definition of what a good work is except for taking risks when God has laid some dream destiny thingy on your heart. Utter nonsense. Has me to, to move. Why shouldn't I be the one to step out in faith? Maybe you're asking, well, why do I have this disability? Why won't God answer my prayer? Why won't he heal me of this sickness? But maybe the question we should be asking is, why not me? Why couldn't God's strength be made perfect even in my weakness? Why couldn't I be the one where God could show how powerful he is? Because if I can follow him, then no one else has an excuse not to follow him either. Maybe instead of saying, well, why haven't we had kids? Well, why aren't we able to have kids? The question should be, why not have spiritual children? Why not invest in a foster care system? Why not adopt other people? Stop asking the question, why me? We have to start asking the question, why not? Because when we make that shift in our thinking, then all of a sudden, we don't see ourselves as little bugs. We don't see ourselves as grasshoppers. But all of a sudden, we see ourselves as giant killers. We're the ones who will devour the enemy who's in our land. We're the ones. Yeah, not even Josh and Caleb thought that. They believed that the Lord would make good his promise and that the Lord would give these, you know, the Amalekites and the Uptites and the Hittites and the Balletites, that he was going to give them into their hands. God was going to win for them. We're going to step forward in faith. See, I think that there are some of us who walked in today and you feel like a bug. You feel small. You feel insignificant. Like maybe, maybe I don't even have a whole lot to offer. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience to uh, do business with them, have them make important decisions and stuff. I'm reminded of this story my boys used to love. For me to read at bedtime. You know, as a parent, like, they ask the same book a million times. It's just, like, burned into your memory. And, like, I know I'll be, like, 90 years old and I can recite this entire book. But it's called, Because a Little Bug Went Kachoo. If you ever- you're you're clo- closing with, When a Little Bug Went Kachoo. <sighs> if you ever read this book, it starts on the first page. There's a little bug and he sneezes. And because he sneezes, this rock falls down and it hits a worm on the head. The worm gets mad and kicks a tree. 
a coconut falls and hits a turtle. The turtle splashes in the water. It goes this whole thing until finally there's a farmer with a bucket on his head who's trying to drive to the hospital. He uh, flies off a ramp into a boat, causes a hole. The boat's sinking. A helicopter comes, picks up the boat. They're taking it into town. And all of a sudden, this boat, helicopter, farmer, policeman, everything flies into the middle of the city where there's this circus parade. And it says it was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And as far as anybody knows, it's still happening. And then you flip to the last page and it says... All because a little bug went kachoo. And so you might have walked in today feeling like a little bug. But God can take a little bug and do great things. He can take a grasshopper and turn him into a giant killer. He can take someone who feels insignificant and use them to leave behind a legacy that no one will ever match. I don't know where that puts you today. I think some of us walked in today and... We've been asking ourselves, why am I not where I thought I'd be by now? You spent the last six months, last year, focusing on your position. Maybe today you need to remember God's promise. That if you put that inside of your heart, he's not going to abandon that. Don't stop short. Keep going. And remember his promise. Yeah, just keep swimming. and Remember his promise. We're not sure what that promise is, but it's somewhere. You just rummage through your sinful blackened heart and you'll find it. Maybe you walked in today and you're living your life in fear. You're afraid to let go because you've got this safe little life that you've built for yourself. Remember, comfort zones don't make us safe. They make us small. Yeah, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. If we never let go, we're never going to accomplish what God has put inside of us. Never. And maybe you know it's a relationship. It's a parenting decision. This feels like a guided meditation. This is like some new age practice, right? It's a career decision. There's something that you need to let go of. Don't allow your fear to keep you stuck for the rest of your life. Or maybe today you know that your mind's been in the wrong place. You spent your entire life asking the question, why me? Why me? I always tell my boys there's two kinds of people in the world. People who complain and the people who do something about it. As long as we're complaining, we're not going to be doing anything. When you start to ask the question, why not? Why shouldn't it be me? Why shouldn't I be the one to do something different? Why shouldn't I be the one to pioneer a new trail? We start to ask that question. And yet, Scripture never tells us to ask that question. Weird. We're going to find we have a life-changing faith because we've taken significant risk. Yeah, just take risks, you know. I think the only question we have left to ask ourselves today is will we be a grasshopper? Or a giant killer? Will we retreat? Or will we advance? Done. Wow. Yeah, no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no crucified and risen Savior, no focus on the real promises that we have in Christ. Forgiveness, mercy, redemption, eternal life, and a God who meets our needs. Nope. Got to go out and take risks in order to, you know, to have faith in the promise that God apparently put on your heart. And yet, no texts say that God does that. Not even one. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at 
Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.